0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Ellie Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. And I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi,
1: Kate. Hi, Eric.
0: So today we're speaking with director Alison Clayman about her most recent documentary, The Brink, which focuses on Steve Bannon, a kind of character that we don't hear too much about in the news right now, though we may soon, because one of the things that the documentary details is his active work to pull together a kind of right, hard right, nationalist formation inside of the European Union, and many of the elections in those countries where increasingly far-right nationalist parties have moved to the center of political discourse are coming up in May. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, actually, this documentary, which I think does a lot to break down the kind of edifice of like an evil villain and genius that Bannon has built around himself in U.S. media, may become relevant as we start to see how things are Mm going to shape up in the EU. Great. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought I thought we were perhaps rid of Bannon, but I I guess maybe not
0: right Not many cheery thoughts for this particular Thursday Mm. But we should also tell listeners uh, before we get to the conversation with Allison that the film debuts in New York and LA as well as DC March 29th and then should be opening up to theaters in a wider run moving forward
1: Right, and it's good that there's a movie about Steve Bannon because you know Steve Bannon used to make movies
0: yeah, exactly. So, not good ones. This is a better have you documentary. Seen, have you seen this film? I should admit that I have not. So the, don't but the, speak uh, I shouldn't you. say, okay. But the outtakes that I have seen from them, you know, packaged together in like other documentaries uh-huh. do not look promising, uh-huh. nor worth my time. Okay. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let's get to something that is worth our time, which is this interview with Alison Klayman. Okay. We're excited to have with us today filmmaker and journalist Allison Klayman. Klayman is the director of several documentaries, including Ai Way, Wei Wei, Never Sorry, Take Your Pills, and Enhanced. She has received numerous distinctions for her work, including a Sundance Jury Prize for her documentary on Ai Way, Wei Wei, and being included in the New York Times' list of the top 20 international film directors to watch. She joins us today to talk about her most recent film, The Brink, which centers on Steve Bannon, the multi-shirted provocateur who shaped the discourse of (laughs) Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and brought nationalist, often white nationalist, views into the center of mainstream political discourse. The Brink follows Bannon in the aftermath of his dismissal from the White House as he trots around the globe trying to stir up and support extreme right-wing nationalist movements across Europe. Welcome to the show, Allison.
2: Thank you so much, I'm excited to be here.
0: Can we first, talk a little bit about the moment in which you are filming Steve Bannon. So kind of how you got started on this documentary Mm -hmm. and what you set out to document.
2: So it was the summer of 2017 when a producer that I knew and worked with in the past, Marie-Therese Gierges, called me and said, do you want to make a verite documentary about Steve Bannon. This came about because she knew him from kind of a previous life of his. At the end of his time in the entertainment industry, he gathered a group of investors and bought a company called Wellspring Media. It was an art house film distribution company. And he became Marie Trez's direct boss and she worked for him for three years and had a, you know, complicated relationship with him. He was a boss with a big temper, she says, but also he put her as a woman at that time in her early thirties in charge basically of this company and let them do what they wanted. Those were not the kinds of films he made that they were distributing. It was foreign films and queer films, and it was purely a business investment. He also wasn't yet as radicalized. He was kind of, she says, more of a moderate Republican at the time. So they disagreed on politics, but this was kind of pre-Tea Party and Breitbart, Steve Bannon. So this was when he was Uh,
0: making the religious wacko, like films, the religious (laughs) films about like-
2: I think it was like when he was making like a Ode to Reagan film. Oh, I see. Okay. But that was, again, not at Wellspring Media. That was his own kind of side project. And I think that was part of his entree into getting recognition in a political sphere because he would make these right wing propaganda films and he would get recognition from Fox and the right wing and then where he wasn't getting any recognition in mainstream Hollywood or liberal media. But in any case, she had this pre-existing relationship with him, Many years had passed. They hadn't been in touch. When he joined the Trump campaign, she basically got back in touch to send him hate mail. (laughs) It's quite amazing just to say how horrible it was what he was doing, how deeply disappointed she was that he should be ashamed. I mean, really like harsh stuff. I didn't ask if I can even curse on the podcast, (laughs) but, you know, and to her surprise, he would write back. And, you know, she was like, man, I mean, if he's texting me during a presidential debate. Clearly, (laughs) I have good access here. And because they had a trust from the time that they knew each other about 15 years ago, she thought that there might be a way to ask him to do a documentary.
1: And I want to go back to when she approached you. Why did she suggest a verite documentary as opposed to more of like a talking head or some other
2: form? Totally. And that was key to the whole idea. And the impetus for why make a documentary period, first of all, is like, well, one, I think she felt like, you know, personal catharsis of like, sending him hate mail is only satisfying to a point, and there's something bigger you could do. And what she thought a documentary could provide to audiences, to the public, to history, I mean, was something that was a real, a more accurate depiction of him. Because since she knew him, And suddenly he was in the popular imagination. It was this very, what she saw was this incredibly one-dimensional, limited depiction. You know, he's death itself. He's the Grim Reaper. But it was also kind of the great manipulator, Trump's brain, like evil genius. And she was like, these are actually, they're one-dimensional, but they're actually very powerful images that he was probably gathering strength from. And he was able to it's capital. You know, It sounds like he's powerful. It sounds like he's brilliant. And she was like, I think that depiction has some big holes that if you fill, it will help people better understand what he's actually about and how he's actually doing what he's doing. And the idea that being human, it's not humanizing, it's kind of demystifying. Or that is to say, if you don't recognize that people who are doing bad things in the world actually are human and they're not necessarily foaming at the mouth and breathing fire 24 (laughs) hours a day, you might then have a better sense of what to look out for. (laughs) Like, you might not know what a bad (laughs) person is if you think that they are only one way, like an SNL depiction of the Grim Reaper.
3: So when you started to make this documentary, did you set out to make a portrait of a bad person?
2: I mean, not really. So that goes back to the question about why Verite. It was also because that was her inspiration for why there should be a documentary, right? But the idea of why it should be verite is because it's not really meant to be a portrait. Like, the idea was, this is someone who is very active. We don't know what he's going to do next. Honestly, when he first agreed to do the film, he was still in the White House, but then it ended up that he was ejected after about a week after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. What he was going to do outside of the White House with Breitbart, it seemed like it was something where you could be on the front lines and see what is he interested in next? It felt like it was going to be relevant, and in truth, he is someone who is articulate a vision for an international far-right unified movement. That is something that is puts him in a position where he, where we're like, we want to see where he's going, what he's doing, who he's working with. And so in that sense, the idea is to judge him. If you're to say it's a portrait, it's a portrait in action. It's like, what are his tactics? Who is supporting him? Who is he meeting with? Who's giving him money? I mean, all of that was... To me, much more interesting than in terms of the style. Certainly, sitting down for an interview with him felt like it would be pretty worthless. I mean, because mm-hmm. I think he's a very skilled, he thrives in the combative interview setting. He doesn't sit down in good faith. I didn't know him at all and didn't know what he was like in person. I only had the like Darth Vader image of him. But now that I have observed him for many 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 hours i see how he works and he changes the topic he lies he distorts facts so to me sitting down and being like what do you think about something is like it's not going to bear fruit really and when she going back to like how it happened i mean she asked him to do a documentary and said you know we need access you need full create you know you can't have any creative input at all It's probably going to be critical. I probably couldn't find a good director who agrees with you, but it'll be high quality. It will be like a fair treatment. She played it to his ego. You know, it'll be prestigious. You know, I'll get a great director. We'll have good distribution. And he said no several times. First time, I think he said, you'll destroy me. And then the fourth time he just said to her, I'll do it. And I do think, lucky for me, she had me in mind as the director, and she always says that it was good I said yes because she wasn't sure what she would do (laughs) otherwise. But I think because this is something that's in my wheelhouse, the idea of like long-term observation, insinuating yourself into someone's life and world. For me, the really big twist, which I didn't really feel like there were any documentaries out there that I could look to as like an example, was the fact that he was someone... Again, I didn't know him personally, so I can't say I hate him as an individual. I didn't know what he was like, but what he was doing in the world and his worldview, I was truly opposed to. To me, though, I understood that if I could make a film that was an accurate, honest portrayal, I would still be able to communicate my observation of him through my worldview. You know, I bring my values and my politics to the film. That doesn't mean it's a hatchet job. And everything about how we edited it and how I shot it, since I worked as a one-person crew. So it was all me filming and doing sound, which helped to kind of blend in and also get access when it was maybe, it's easier to have one person in than three people or, you know, a larger crew. But I feel like it's all about really, as much as possible, letting scenes play out. In these times, I think it makes a lot of sense, too, in terms of how people approach media and the skepticism you might have. It's really about can you put this together and let him reveal himself and let him expose himself.
0: So I'm interested in this because as I watch the film, I feel like there is no self there. Like, you know, to get back to a kind of earlier thing that you said where it's like what he's about. Mm I wonder if there is anything there, or if similar to the man that he helped push into the White House, there's just merely a longing for adulation, the feeling that one is doing something, this kind of, you know, as Day and I were talking about earlier in the show, that so much of this is about political theater. And do you get a sense that there is any real belief there, or is it merely theater for theater's sake?
2: So I think you're totally on to all the right questions. And what you're saying that you observed is a lot of what I... Some of the conclusions that I came to in terms of...
0: Right, like what it felt like being in the room. Yes. Because you're right there.
2: To me, part of just how you do a good verite documentary is just that you're around a lot. Some of that is because people letting their guard down, it's not even that's because he trusted me. I mean, maybe he did, but it's more like you just get used to someone being there. Mm. And then for me as the filmmaker... I want to see someone in as many different contexts as possible because I feel like that's how you're going to get to like some kind of overall average of what is this person like? This is a line they always say in this context. Oh, they never give the same answer twice. And I feel like he especially is someone who is performing maybe even when he's alone. I mean, he's like performing for different people all the time. Again, I think a lot of people, we all, then you can get existential, like what is the self? And I guess it all sure. it all comes down to like, I don't know, what's in Bannon's heart, even though I've spent a lot of time watching him. It's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's in his heart and I think it's important. That's why for me it's important just to judge him on his actions and his words. Because to me, is he doing it to be loved? Is he doing it for power? Is he doing it for money? I mean, I do think yes, for yes to all of the above. Is he doing it? And what is the real root of his ideologies? I mean, I think I can't say if he wakes up every morning and is like, I want to like, harm Muslims, and I want to harm black people. or. But I think, in effect, that's what he's doing. He's willing to countenance, he's willing to dog whistle, he's willing to promote policies, that tear families apart. All these things, it's like, I don't even, so I always am like, does it matter what where he well, comes from? Because that's what he's doing. So what did you take away? Did you take
1: away a vision for the world from him that is just a white nationalist world, like a united, I mean, it's telling that the film begins with him describing the ingenuity of the Nazis and the yeah. concentration camps and how he was so wowed. I mean, he's saying that he, yes, it was chilling, the precision of Birkenau or whatever, but it's he's intrigued, obviously, as he's talking about it. You can tell he's getting excited. So, do you think it's something like that? Because it's hard in the film to balance that kind of banality of his day to day life. Of you show him drinking lots of Red Bull and mm-hmm. you know on the computer, talking on the phone. He's such a schlubby guy. It's like he doesn't seem of much consequence. And since you don't get such an idea of his ideology, it's hard to tell exactly like who we're dealing with as we see the documentary.
2: I mean, to me, the ideology. And the thinness of any ideology except one that is rooted in racism and white and Christian supremacy is, I think that's what the film shows. But again, I can't say I know what's in his heart. So I'm just showing what I observed. And I think it is the viewers can decide. Obviously, he wants to frame it all. I really think he's busy trying to mainstream and like, frankly, co-opt a lot of language of the left in terms of making everything about economics and jobs and helping citizens. But I think you just have to, I mean, sometimes you don't even have to follow the logic down like two steps or scratch underneath the surface, because he gets in a room and they're talking about birth rates. Like who sits around and is worried about in the scene where he is meeting with far right leaders. And again, that makes them sound some are big deal. Some are leaders of very small parties, but he's sitting with a leader of a small party in Belgium. And he's saying, you know, for the migrants, the Muslim migrants, what's their birth rate compared to like a native Belgium? And the guys, oh two or three times. I mean, who sits around and worries about something like that if fundamentally what you aren't concerned about is preserving Europe and the U.S., protecting them from invaders from the global south and from Islam? You also only have to look at what he actually accomplished at the White House. The one thing he got done from his agenda was the Muslim travel ban, and then it's a bunch of tax cuts for the rich, which he likes to say, you know, oh, I tried to fight against it, but come on. In the film when he... The night before the midterms, he's saying, oh, if we lose the midterms, we're not going to get a wall. I'm sorry, you had two years where you controlled all branches of government. If you wanted to fund a wall, you had two years to do it, and you didn't. What you did was you enacted a travel ban against Muslims, and you made tax cuts for the super rich.
0: To return to what you were saying about looking not at this kind of empty signifier that is Bannon, but rather his words and actions, I mean, I think there you also see, and your film draws out, these deep ironies that point to somebody who is whatever is going to get attention you know so for example the class politics right oh i'm all about the working class but i love talking about the irony that it's like i'm staying at these five-star hotels i'm flying on these private jets this tax cut thing for example (laughs) right like that's not in service of working folks and then similarly the deep irony of him saying that the left is all about identity politics and we've heard him say that a million times but underneath everything that you're talking about is identity politics. It's just not saying it's white identity politics. Mm -hmm. That's what the birth rates things are about. That's Mm -hmm. what the immigration debate is about. That's what all of that stuff is about. So it seems that in the center of this is either a kind of structural incoherence or a cover for a deeply pernicious and quite evil, if that doesn't give him too much power, set of goals and aspiration.
2: Ding, ding, ding for yeah. both of those, I think, because I, again, I did go to give him a fair shake in the sense of, I didn't know who he was, so I didn't know, is he a mastermind? Is he really what he wants to be this like, the intellectual engine of the far right movement or of nationalism? And I think that idea of, like, the structural incoherence, I mean, I would push him. This isn't necessarily in the film because it's kind of wonky. And, like, you also have to make a movie that has a storyline and keeps people interested, which, by the way, I feel like the movie is. It's not just medicine. You know, it's intimidating if you don't like him to be like, oh, am I going to watch a movie about Steve Bannon? But actually, he is kind of a good character. I mean, my, like, one stipulation besides that I had to have the kind of access to make an interesting Verite film was, like, I was just like, I need to meet him because I was worried... Can he carry a movie? What's he like? It was before he had done any sit down interviews. Now, obviously, you could watch on YouTube, BBC 60 Minutes, there's tons of hour long interviews with him. But at the time, that wasn't out there. And 10 seconds in, I was like, Oh, man, this guy's gonna say some shit. Like, it was like, he's a character. But When I would ask him, you know, okay, so let's say you get what you want. What does the world look like in 10 years? Or like, do you believe in capital controls? Or you want to restructure the U.S.-China relationship? How are you going to do it? He doesn't have any answers. Once you get past him changing the topic throwing facts and figures at you that are possibly misleading or used incorrectly or just not on the topic. Where you usually get with him is either to a place where he just wants to control the movement of people around the world but not the movement of money and or a place where he says, look, it's early days for this movement. It's early days, we still gotta figure this out. We haven't had think tanks. I mean, we just, we, he will admit that policy-wise, they're kind of lacking and they need to get somewhere. So I kind of think the two things you suggested are both true, that I just don't think it's that coherent of a worldview. And the only way you can give it coherence, I think, is if you turn to the white supremacy. That's the way that you can like make it all make sense. But this is me also, again, extrapolating from what I saw. He would not, obviously, he would vehemently deny any of this, but that's why Is it worthwhile to sit down and ask him in an interview, like, are you a racist? I mean, it's just, what's the point of that? I really do think you have to watch. And I tried, again, in this film, I mean, it's not just unfiltered truth or reality. Like, this is a movie that was crafted by me, and I spent a lot. I had hundreds of hours, and I spent a lot of time with him and asked him a lot of these questions. And so I was kind of trying to put together a portrait where you can have all these elements. And if you feel like... I mean, his organization is a mess, or the ideas are thin. That is what I observed, and I was trying to give a slice of... It's a distillation of my experience of him over 13 months, basically.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Alison Clayman, director of The Brink, We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
3: We have Jeff Dyer in the studio with us today. Jeff Dyer is a writer, a novelist, an essayist. His latest book is Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, Watching Where Eagles Dare. And he's here to recommend a book for us. Jeff, what book are you going to recommend?
4: Yeah, I'd like to recommend The Year's by Annie Erno, a French writer who, to be honest, I'd not heard of before I read this book. And it's remarkable. It's an autobiography. She tells the story of her life from uh, 1941 pretty much up to the present. But as she says somewhere, it's a kind of impersonal autobiography in that she's not concerned so much with something that happened to her when she was six, when she went on a picnic with her friends and cut her knee or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. What she's doing is telling a whole sort of history of society. She's talking about the products that become available at a certain time, the cultural and political trends that affected us, her generation of French, French women, let's say, primarily. And it's just got this wonderful sense of that you're moving through a very, very personalized form of history. And it's Mm interesting for me to read because of the way that my experience doesn't quite fit with hers in that she's a woman, she's French and she's older than me. But there are these bits where uh, our experience I've experienced the same things, but in a different way. and I think anyone who reads that will be will be aware of that really interesting not you know sort of sinking in, in and out of it. And it's a really a really it's incredibly original absolutely absorbing, a wonderful, innovative piece of work published in Britain by Fitzgeraldo Press and in the US, I believe, by Seven Stories, who uh, they originated the English translation.
3: Can you give us an example of where you felt sort of this uncanny similarity between you and Annie's experience?
4: Yes, absolutely. So, for example, she talks about the politics of, of various phases and, of course, because she's a bit older, she went through. I was mercifully spared the embarrassment of going through a kind of Maoist phase Mm -hmm. but um, it makes you aware that uh, okay we all think we're living our lives and they're interesting but you know she made someone aware of just how for example that period of uh, either the Reagan Thatcher era is just how pervasive it was and but how there were different sort of iterations of it depending on on where you were so when I was reading the first chapters of course which I had no experience of, because I wasn't born. And then gradually, there are bits where I'm realizing, oh, yes, you know, the punk period of the late 70s. I was living through that in a different way to her, though, because by then, of course, she was older and a mother, all this kind of stuff. Really, really very, very thought-provoking and utterly, uh, utterly absorbing book.
3: I'm convinced. I think that sounds great. Jeff, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author?
4: It's uh, The Years by Annie Erno.
3: Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jeff Dyer. His latest book is Broadsword Calling Danny Boy. Thank you, Jeff.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Alison Clayman, Director of The Brink.
3: I think with those things in consideration, because his ideas are very visibly thin, his ability to manage people seems not good, to say the (laughs) least. (laughs) Um, There are many times when you just hear him yelling at at people for a variety of reasons, and they also seem incompetent. With all of that, and, and because so many of the conversations that we witness in the movie, particularly with him, between him and, I think, Nigel Farage, you get the sense that there is nothing there but uh, essentially a blowhard. Because of that, like, how real do you think his power is? And if it's, I mean, I think the follow-up question to that would be, and if it's not real, why should we have a film about it?
2: Well, part of the, that is a question that I've thought about every day. (laughs) Obviously, I did not think it was worth abandoning the project because, so I think you know the answer is we should have a film about him because it's not really do we or do we not cover him because I do think he is a figure of significance right now, but I think how you cover him and whether your coverage is assuming certain things about his effectuality and his relevance and it's bolstering it because of that, I think that that's why how you cover cover him and other – and Nigel Farage and other people like him is the conversation. And that's why to, a big part of the film is watching his relationship with the media, which, again, I will include, like, the film itself. I'm not acting like there's just, like, heroes and, and you know, bad journalists or, like, you know, this film is doing everything great and everybody – I mean, I'm not, like, against the journalists. There are a lot of structural reasons why access journalism – Exists and why, it, and I and I'm sympathetic that it is a tricky thing to navigate. However, I do feel like the wrong way to cover him is to be his stenographer. I think I, I have a Google alert about Steve, you know, for Steve Bannon. Even now, you know, where our film is sometimes, you know, bleeding into the alert, and there's stuff, you know, about you know how he appears in the movie. And even though it feels like he is a figure who is, you know, on the down slope of his relevance, the I mean, just try it. There's still like, uh, you know, a dozen hits. And sometimes there's like all the coverage that comes from one article. And it's just like what Bannon thinks about stuff It's just like Bannon says Theresa May is blah. You know, Bannon thinks this. Bannon was at this dinner. Um, and part of why that is, is because. He works the media like this is something that he loves. He, uh, you know, he he does kind of charm them. I think he has a gen and it's not just nefarious. I think he like, you know, he likes the attention. He you know, he's planting stories. He's milking journalists for their info, too. And I think he also fundamentally understands. He says it in the film, you know, that being in the mainstream media is like it's a tool for especially for movements that are seen as fringe. I mean, frankly, he's not a fringe figure, I would argue. I would argue he's the mainstream of the Republican Party. Uh, That's another reason why I think it's not about don't cover him or don't have, you know, a film about him. During that year, I mean, he's on the phone with Senate leadership. He'd be on the phone with members of the, you know, Trump administration, uh, maybe people who had just left. But, you know, while Jeff Sessions was in the cabinet, he was constantly in touch with him. He'd be on the phone with Lindsey Graham. He even would meet with, you know members of the democratic party, not a lot. I mean, it was just, to me, it was a, that was always a reminder that like, you know, and then not, not the least of which to talk about his global ambitions and what he was trying to do in Europe. So I think a good example. So to me, it was never like, oh, this film is just gonna like make him relevant in a way that he's like, not active, um, you know, right now. But like, our Uh, You know, there's there's a section of the movie where he meets with foreign, far-right leaders from around Europe. And, you know, a lot of the tools of Verite documentary, I think, are like, because there's no voiceover, there's no narrator, there's no, you know, commentators, you know, to frame things. So the devices that I felt like I had to work with are like juxtaposition and repetition, you know, what comes before, you know, where you place things. And so like him meeting with these far right leaders saying, you know, talking about essentially like taking down the EU and is paired with the way you, where you come out of it is not oh, my God, like, Bannon's going to do this. It's him saying, because he says this at this meeting with them, you know, the mainstream media is going to be our biggest ally. We're going to, like, you know, all all press is good press. And it, I take you out of the that scene with a montage of basically him drumming up the stories, you know, meeting with reporters from you know, every mainstream media outlet about the story of Bannon is setting up something to take down Europe. So, like, it's not that I'm saying, look, he's definitely doing this thing and look how effectual he is. It's like, look, he is doing something. He brought these people together at a meeting where they're going to talk about coordinating. They wouldn't have all sat down and had that conversation without him convening it. And then you're seeing how he's trying to spin that as a story yeah. of something much bigger. But what
1: do you think if you know you cover, you're you're filming him as he you know ha- has a series of kind of setbacks and he gets um, canceled from being a keynote speaker at the New Yorker Festival. Uh, do you think if more? I mean, I see your point that it's not just mainstream media that's interested in covering him. But if he was shunned by more media, if you know, if more people were like the New Yorker Festival and said, "We don't want to give you money, we don't want to give you, you know, access, we don't want to give you a platform," do do you think that would be a good thing? Did you did you query with that while you were making the documentary? Well, I think that's what
2: I just said. Yeah. Like, I think that the coverage shouldn't be inviting him to be on a stage to talk about what he thinks about the world. I, personally, I, you know, I I I think it wasn't a great look that they invited him and then rescinded it you know to speak about the New Yorker specifically but I do think that inviting him as part of anything that's called an ideas festival or something like <laughs> right. I don't I think no don't do that and I think he should be covered but the the daily like what does Bannon think about XY you know Y Z you know where is Bannon going like I, I feel like there needs to be more synthesis and analysis for me the big story that everyone should be talking about is who is funding him and I know that that's much harder journalism to do especially because of after Citizens United, I mean, he has a C4. It's damn near impossible to know who is putting money into his C4. But, you know, for me, again, the film, there's a lot of billionaires in this film, you know? And who he spends time with as a whole while he talks about being for the common man, it's not just about, oh, he flies in private jets and stays in five-star hotels, although it was great for the art direction of the movies, a lot of great wallpaper in this film, you know? <laughs> sure. but, but he really prioritizes spending time with billionaires. He, and the idea of, for me, the media isn't the only thing that is problematic in this picture. What is really problematic is that he has millionaires and billionaires funding what he's doing. To me, if that stopped, then he would really stop. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, like, journalists taking a critical approach at what he's doing is, like, I, it, I think that's actually necessary. Of course. Um, I think it's the money that is keeping him afloat. The money and the fact that, like, he, it's also that he himself is not the magic wizard that is, like, making people move to this side. I mean, part for me of the film also is that it's a movie. It's called The Brink. It's not called Bannon because it's about this whole time this whole ecosystem and I think Mm -hmm. that while we can I do think the movie diminishes him and kind of deconstructs him as well but I think it's not meant to tell you okay so Bannon's not everything that you know he's not the master villain and therefore you can chill out because I think that you know what he's best at is taking credit for things that are like already happening or you know kind of inserting himself late in the game like if the far-right parties of you know get a third of the EU Parliament in the May elections coming up. I'm sure he'll take credit for that. I don't really know I think he has some small part to play and he is advising some parties and there's there's real stuff there, but it's not like he and there's gonna be articles about how Bannon, you know, there already have been articles. It's like Bannon's going for Europe. That's absurd. But the reality is I don't know how these parties are gonna do in May and they might win more seats than they ever have before. And that is alarming for a lot of reasons. And And I just think like there is, you know, you can look at a bigger thing. And and for a film, he is a, you know, he he is also like a vector through which you can look at these bigger things.
3: Actually, now that you bring that up, one of the really interesting parts of the movie is that you do see the people that he surrounds himself with. And one, and I now don't remember his name, but one of the people who keeps popping up is the ex- CEO of Goldman Sachs. John Thornton. John Thornton. Um, and there are a few other, I assume John Thornton is a multimillionaire, perhaps a billionaire, um, other multimillionaire billionaires who sort of um, show up around the, on the sidelines uh, of Steve Bannon's world. Something that I was curious about is, what do you think is motivating somebody like John Thornton to be there? Because presumably he's good at making money in other ways. And so why? Why this allegiance? And is because, uh, you know, uh, the clearest answer for me would be uh, white supremacy and and making certain that white supremacy um, has some kind of financial and uh, structure underneath it. But did you get a sense of like what draws these sort of. Uh, Sideline figures to Steve Bannon.
2: First and foremost, there has to be a shared worldview there, and which whatever part of it is the most important, you know, it might it might differ by the by the person. I think, like certainly, Eric Prince shares anti-Muslim worldview. He probably doesn't share the same concern about China, considering he is a consultant for the, you know, Chinese army. <laughs> and I would ask Ben that a lot. I'm like, how does that really, you know, square? And eventually he would say, yeah, well, you know, Eric and I disagree on that. You know, he thinks he can change things by working with them. I was like, that's just crazy. But so clearly there's, whether or not it's like actively white supremacist or like a willingness to countenance, you know, that kind of language behavior. Again, they all don't, you know, they're all also really able to not see themselves through that lens. I just feel like it doesn't really matter how they see see it. But I think a couple things with some of these figures. I mean, one, fundamentally, they don't see for all of his saber rattling about being for the little guy. Clearly, millionaires and billionaires don't feel like Bannon's worldview is going to threaten their wealth. And they're like, you know, the status quo in terms of how they do business fundamentally, you know. And, you know, secondly, I would say, and this is speculation because I really I don't know. And I didn't ask, you know, I didn't on the side get a chance to ask, why are you spending time? But to me, it seems like they are betting on the fact that Bannon will, you know, has and will have continued political power. I don't know. Like, I can't imagine why else you would. Spend time. I think, you know, if you see yourself as like a potential ambassador or, you know, so, uh, someone who has a position in government, you know, for whatever reason, people think Bannon is like a good person to keep around. He can help you get like access. And I'm not saying I saw him, I don't know if I saw him like promise that, but I'm saying that is my, that, that was, was one of my interpretations. Also, with John Thornton, I mean, Bannon used to work at Goldman Sachs, so I, I think they also had a, some kind of relationship. I certainly Bannon admired him a lot.
0: Just one last question as we close out. There's a very interesting moment towards the end of the film. You're in Venice, and there's a reporter whose name I'm blanking on right now from The Guardian. Paul Lewis. Paul Mm -hmm. Lewis, who has a wonderful way, I think, of taking down or unmasking Bannon's incoherence and the lack of any real ideas underneath that. And And dishonesty, And and dishonesty, yes. And so he he calls out the anti-Semitism inherent to Bannon's remarks about George Soros. Mm -hmm. And Bannon has no answer. And what I'm wondering is kind of you thinking about how media might respond to these figures. It seems to work actually quite well when we drop the affect of politesse and actually say, no, you're a liar. That is, in fact, wrong. And this is a thing that the media has, for understandable reasons, a lot of difficulty seeming to say. And so I'm just wondering, at the end of all of this experience that you've had with a figure like Mm -hmm. Bannon, do you think that that is effective or how do you think that we effectively, if, we're, if we can't all be documentary filmmakers, <laughs> right, just day-to-day journalists, how do you think that we combat these lies, dishonesties, and the like, deeply pernicious politics that they support?
2: Again, all the framing of that is so spot on. Just like the question itself, I think you just baked in a lot of like what happens and what people should be thinking about. Um, I mean... So a couple things, you know, Paul Lewis goes goes at him pretty hard. You know, he also had a camera there. He was doing something that was like a mini version of what I was, although it's more interview based. He was doing a little, you know, a mini documentary for The Guardian, but he Mm -hmm. is the reporter in, in frame and narrates it. For a piece like that, you know, what's different between that and Verite filmmaking, you know, and the way I was doing it is like it's framed around. You see the journalist, you know go toe to toe with with Bannon. For me, it was also great because I would prefer that to happen in front of my camera rather than the point of my movie is not necessarily for me to get my licks in you know as the voice behind screen. I want to like see that. I think that's why that moment in the film is also incredibly. Cathartic. I mean, at every screening at Sundance and some of the preview screenings I've been at, there's like spontaneous applause because you're like, finally, like someone yeah. is standing up. And and I would say I watched a lot of interviews and I and and some there were some journalists that would you know push him go hard, but you know there were a lot of times where I felt like things were left on the table. And maybe it is about access journalism because you want to make sure you're like invited back. Paul was calibrating it because he wasn't you know, using him as a source forever, you know, he was, you know, spending, he interviewed him a bunch, but he then knew it was going to end. But what's important about that scene, I think a couple of things after he goes hard at him real hard and is saying, you know, pointing out that he's a liar and, you know, saying he's using anti-Semitic dog whistles. And afterwards, Bannon's super genial with him as he's leaving, right? Like Bannon wasn't like Get out of here. I'm never talking to you again. He was trying to play the like chummy, like, oh, come on. Like, you don't really believe that, right? And like, you know, patting him on the arm. Paul, to his credit, you know, didn't totally laugh back. Yeah, yeah, he's like, yeah. you. this is making me very uncomfortable. You do this little smirk. I like, I'm not down. But again, Ben still talked to him after that. So first of all, maybe access journalism, people should incorporate the idea that like, remember these subjects need you too. (laughs) So like, don't assume that when you go hard, they're like never gonna talk to you again, maybe like don't tiptoe so much. And I also think I, I did know that Paul came into this project his project somewhat similar to me in that he was very concerned about how do you cover this person? Mm -hmm. And I just think, again, like that, and it is a luxury. What he was doing was more luxurious than what someone who's like, a you know, doing a different kind of daily news or beat reporting journalism. What I'm doing is like great, you know, it's privileged compared to that in terms of the time that I get to spend But I still think, you know, what people need to do is like not be afraid that people are going to ice you out because like they do need you to or to do stories where either you come extra, extra prepared. The reason he was able to get him is because he was really prepared and he was able to expose those lies. But I also think that kind of confrontation is like not enough for, you know, the journalism that's needed. I really do think it's got to be about the money and and you know what Paul's eventual piece that he put together also kind of exposed he was like what Bannon says he's going to do in Europe with his you know the movement capital T capital M found you know organization provide polling and data data analytics for the European parliamentary elections that's actually illegal in most European countries you mm-hmm. can't be a foreign entity mm-hmm. you know providing these kind of tools like that is actually illegal on his piece put that out there and Bannon was probably, he could have been coming to that same realization on his own. Also, just, you know, so I think it was great because there was some substance as well. You know, there was that other substance that comes from the resources of of, an organization like The Guardian and the fact that he's a journalist. He was able to expose something. I would also say the story doesn't end there. Just because something's illegal doesn't mean people aren't going to go ahead and do it anyway. So, again, to Mm -hmm. me, that's, like, journalists should be doing the kind of thing that, I mean, in an ideal world that, like, an average person can't do just by hanging out with someone, right? And like yeah. like something that they can do that's like more than like, you know, that's kind of what I was doing. I brought a... Are, you know my skills as a documentary filmmaker, and I was spending a lot of time. But like, I can't do the same kind of investigative reporting that someone who you know is working with a with a outlet. I mean, I feel like just journalists should just be doing more of that stuff. That like, you know, you feel like that is something only an investigative reporter can do. Yeah, so I, that's what I would say to people.
0: All right, let's end there. We've been speaking with Allison Clayman, director of The Brink. The film opens in New York. Los Angeles and D.C. on March 29th and in broader theaters moving forward.
2: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.